0: Hello, welcome back to the Doctors In podcast and our special series, What Plants Crave. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Saba, president of Dr. Greenhouse. My guest today is Joe Swartz, vice president of American Hydroponics in a familiar face and voice in the world of greenhouse vegetable production. Joe is regularly found on LinkedIn, posting cool photos of lettuce and herbs growing in his greenhouse, giving shout-outs to both industry leaders and newcomers to controlled environment agriculture, and sharing his thoughts around the past, present, and future of our industry. And near and dear to my heart, Joe also has a passion for educating others. He conducts frequent two-day grower seminars at the AM Hydro Greenhouses in Arcata, California, and helps expand the state of industry knowledge through the Polygreens podcast, which he co-hosts with Nick Greens. With over 35 years of hydroponic greenhouse growing experience, Joe really knows his stuff and I am ready to learn, learn, learn from him. Joe, welcome. Thank you for being on our podcast, What Plants Crave.
1: Well, thank you, Nadia. I really appreciate the uh, the time and the opportunity to come and speak with you.
0: Well. Let's get into it. And and first, I want you to tell tell me, tell our listeners, how did you get interested in hydroponics and greenhouse production in the first place?
1: Well, actually, my story is a little more unusual than a lot of people in the industry. I actually came from a farming background of a fourth generation farmer. I grew up on a small uh, vegetable farm in Western Massachusetts. And um, as a young guy, I was, I loved farming. I've been, you know, knee deep in the dirt since I was, you know, a young guy and I was very interested in it, but I was also looking at a lot of the negatives. My dad and uncle were potato and onion farmers. My dad had a lot of physical injuries from farming. My uncle actually passed away prematurely due to illnesses related to pesticide exposure because he was the the primary pesticide applicator. And, um, You know, there there were certain challenges that obviously, you know, 13, 14 year old young guy is not, you know, too hot on. As far as the the economics of farming, we had years where we did really well and years that we did really terribly. And here in Massachusetts, we have a very limited growing season, only about 120 days. So when I was looking at that, and also we have, um, you know, a fairly small farm, it was only a 30 acre farm, which comparatively is, is not that big. And so as I was looking at a future in agriculture, uh, I was trying to find ways that I could kind of overcome some or all of those things. And so uh, I started looking around at all different types of season extension, high tunnels, greenhouses, and I was fortunate enough to meet Dr. Peter Shippers, who was at the time, he was a a Dutch grower and he worked at the Cornell University University. Long Island uh, Research Center for many years. And in the 1960s, he was pioneering multiple spacing NFT systems for leaf crops, some of the technology we actually still use today. And uh, and he was real great. He was retired in the early 80s when I first met him, but he gave me some advice, actually sold me a, a small system. And in 1984, I built a greenhouse on my farm and got started and, and um, had some great successes and some spit. Spectacular failures, and uh, and and began really my my path in controlled environment and I always balanced it with the the conventional farm. I raised vegetables for many years outdoors as well, and there were a lot of crossovers and a lot of things that were very similar, but I'll, as you can tell, obviously some things that were that were quite different as well. So I managed to with a very small at the time it was just a four thousand square foot greenhouse. I developed kind of some production methods where I was growing without any pesticides at all, and I was able to grow lettuce, um, some culinary herbs like sweet basil and leafy greens all year round, and uh, that that got me going. And uh, I did that for many years, and then I started consulting probably about twenty years ago because there were a lot of people that were interested in not only the academic uh, portion of controlled environment ag but also the business end of it. How do you actually make money and and survive? Or how do you incorporate this into a farming operation? Or how do you create a business out of it? So I started to do that. And that's really where I uh, got started.
0: Wow. So did you try growing potatoes in your greenhouse?
1: I actually did. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I've grown, I think, just about everything uh, on some level, you know, mostly for the heck of it. But um, I've done potatoes and onions, we grew tobacco. I grew tobacco in the greenhouse. Wow. Corn, uh, loofah sponges. I actually grew loofah sponges again just last year cool. um, because I really enjoy that. And um, the, uh, the, the list of things that I've tried is pretty much endless. Um, some, some did very well and some maybe not so well.
0: I was going to ask, is there a certain crop that you tried that might surprise people that mm. did work well in the greenhouse?
1: I think luffa sponges actually is probably one of the best. Um, the, hmm. the habit of the plant is very similar. Well, actually, uh, luffa sponges, a lot of people think, of course, that they, they come from the sea, uh, but they're actually a gourd. And they um, they have a very similar, they're similar in appearance and plant habit to um, cucumbers. And so you can grow, um, you know, quite a few real high quality luffas on every plant in the same manner that you'd grow cucumbers. Um, it just looks like you have these massive 20-inch long cucumbers growing in your greenhouse. And, um, you know, and loofahs, obviously, um, once they're harvested and processed, they, they last for forever in storage. You can sell them in some markets. They've, they've got a really good price point. They're, you're not kind of encumbered by some of the, the perishable f- fresh produce uh, limitations in terms of uh, production and selling that you normally would with other products.
0: Well, everybody, you just heard a big tip on maybe a new high value crop that we can grow in greenhouses. That is awesome. You're right. They are like cucumbers, right? Yep. And you just kind of let them dry out, right? Or they they kind of grow a little bit longer. Is that how yep. it works?
1: They have a longer, a lo- little bit of a longer cycle. And and we've done we've processed them a couple different ways. Sometimes you can actually just let them dry out on the vine. Sometimes we actually harvest them peel them and then dry them. And, uh, and and so there's a there's a couple different ways you can do it. We actually have had some people do some really cool things. They actually cut the loofahs because the loofahs, of course, are, are cylindrical and they will cut them into one inch wedges and then infuse them with soap. So you actually have a, a exfoliant soap with a loofah built right into it. So, you know, it's like, it's like anything else, you know, using CEA, you can grow anything you want. The economics are, are a big factor in that, and the, and the land use. I actually just had someone today asking me about alfalfa grown hydroponically. Mm. So, so certainly, it's just a matter of you know finding something that that will economically make sense. Because I mean, everything from bananas to different floral crops, I've I've either grown it or seen people grow it, and um, it's just a matter of making the the economics work.
0: Yeah. Well, with uh, with climate variability and all the, the smoke and fires and floods and I don't even know all the things that we're dealing now with our with our environment, um, I feel like maybe the arithmetic for growing alfalfa and food and feed crops, as well as even maybe some tree and nut crops. I, I mean, I, it doesn't. Uh, unfortunately feel very far off where we're going to have to be managing some of those crops Mm. in in some sort of a controlled environment.
1: Well, back in the 1960s, Dr. A.J. Cooper in the UK, he was actually cutting, taking cuttings from the, uh, from different pine trees and landscape trees outside of his research center. And he was putting them in his NFT system and rooting them. So, so certainly there's, you know, different types of CEA and hydroponic technologies certainly have way more application than just what we kind of currently see in the business. Yeah. And I think that as we go forward in the industry, we're going to find many other different, not only different crops to grow, but different Ways to approach it using, you know, these tech technologies.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people don't even realize that when they go to Home Depot or Walmart or you know um, one of these nurseries or stores, that that those products were grown a lot of times, most of the time, probably using controlled environment agriculture, whether it was high tunnels to start the season early um, so that they're ready for say Mother's Day or Easter, those flowers or nursery tree crops a lot of times are grown or started and grafted and cured and healed, right? In, um, in a greenhouse type of a setting. Uh, even our Christmas trees, I think yep. a lot of them sort of get started in a greenhouse mm-hmm. nursery setting before they get planted outside. Yeah.
1: I think really, if you think about it, almost all of our commercial farming in some level is controlled environment ag I remember mm. when I was in high school I was growing um, red bell peppers or I was maturing them to red and I was finding that that by altering not only my irrigation but um, in some cases um, cultivating very close and actually cutting the root systems a little bit w- in the field would stress the plants and cause them to to start to ripen earlier and to try to get a mar- uh, a jump on the market and again those are just techniques that we learned to manipulate the physical or nutritional environment around plants. And so the more I know now, and the more I've learned about controlled environment ag, the more I realize, wow, we've been really doing this a very long time and maybe not even knowingly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So... Tell me what are the advantages of growing in a greenhouse? You've mentioned a few in terms, you know, extending the season, being able to grow crops maybe where you couldn't normally uh, in Western Massachusetts or or anywhere um, that a person might be located. But what are, even even if you compared it to what some of our friends are doing indoors and in vertical farms and fully controlled environments, what are the advantages of being in a greenhouse and maybe what are even some of the, the biggest challenges?
1: Great question. So so really, whether we're growing in a greenhouse or in a completely enclosed environment or outdoors in the field, there are always trade-offs. There's always advantages and disadvantages to both, uh, to, to either. And, um, and so in terms of greenhouse production, you know, obviously, you know, the we have significant control uh, over the, the physical and nutritional conditions that the plants are exposed to, of course, um, at different levels, depending on, on the type of technologies that we're using. We also, one of the things that I always think back on is that a greenhouse, you know, if we're going to be growing indoors in some capacity, a greenhouse is a building that is very specifically designed for horticultural production. So everything from the glazing to the environmental control systems, heating, ventilation, air movement, you name it, all focuses around proper horticultural uh, production. One of the things I always tell people in in CEA, regardless of, you know, the, the methods we're using, we're farming, And when we're farming, we're doing three things. This is kind of my golden rule. And I'm going to tell you now because it prefaces a lot of the other things that we'll probably talk about. Is that when we're farming, what we're doing is we're growing plants and we're growing them uh, high-quality plants that need to be obviously competitive in the market as far as quality. We also need to be uh, producing plants or putting plants in the market that are price-competitive. And we need to be able to do that. So so we have to produce quality plants. We have to produce price competitive plants. And we have to do so in a way that allows us a reasonable profit. So basically, regardless of what you're doing, how you're doing it, where you're doing it, you have to make sure your plants are of good quality, that they, they will compete in the market. And I've seen a lot of people fall short of that. Um, also, you have to be able to be price competitive. When people talk about their new innovative production system, but in order to turn a profit, you have to sell lettuce for $5,000 a pound, not a good, not a good model. And, and then, so basically, regardless of what that price point is, your production methodology and technology has got to provide you a reasonable profit. So essentially, we have to grow plants that will sell in the market that we can make money doing it. And so regardless of how we're doing that, we have to abide by those principles. There's no way around it. So with the greenhouse, that is, in my opinion, in my experience, one of the best ways to accomplish all three. Now, it's not the only way, and it's certainly not necessarily the the right application in all situations, but it certainly is a great thing. So so in terms of being, with my greenhouse production, I was able to grow crops of substantially higher quality than I could outdoors. I was able to do that pesticide-free, using only biological control. And the grand, the greenhouse enabled me to do that. Here in New England, I was able to grow high-quality crops at a good growth rate using a greenhouse with supplemental lighting. I was able to grow all year round at a, at a, at a high productivity uh, rate. And uh, obviously in the field, those are things that you can't do. As you look at it compared to indoor production, and this is, you know, one of the things I've I've had very, very big challenges, as you all know, with um, some some players in the indoor vertical farming industry and some methods in the industry and, and your presence, Nadia, in the industry gives me a lot more confidence that um, that that level of productivity will be uh, much better because most of those models don't really focus again on those three laws the, the, and the horticultural production and the cost control that is necessary. And so a lot of your work is kind of bringing that back into, you know, using the right technology and the right approach to, again, accomplish those three things that we need to do. So, so all of them have application. All of the, I've done all three on a commercial level. And certainly there are advantages and disadvantages to both, but those really are the criteria that I look at when I'm looking at any particular project.
0: So basically CEA is a business? (laughs) Surprising, (laughs) I know. Um, It's not just a hobby like gardening?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's not a hobby. And it's certainly not, and I'm sure we can talk more about this, is the, the, the seduction of technology where we're looking at, you know, so many companies and so many players in the industry who are promoting a technology as, you know, the, the be all end all because farmers are stupid and they've destroyed the planet and we're all going to die by tomorrow because the climate's going to blow up and we are going to have too many people to feed. And so I've come up with this new technological solution. Now, whenever I hear that, every well, so far, 100% of the time, but um, usually you see that they're, they're missing or violating some of those critical laws that we talked about. And of course, the economic law of being able to produce and make money doing so, or at least be economically solvent is uh, important. And it's amazing to me how many times that is left out of the equation. I, I see on on you know LinkedIn and other social media all the time when sometimes companies would come up with um you know a, a new innovative system and you know some growers or industry professionals that I know would love to jump in and say well uh, what are the economics of it how do you, do you make money doing that and you know it's usually kind of a long winded answer well if you have to balance in the social benefits and this that and the other thing and you know at the end of the day again if if you're not putting money in your pocket or at least not losing money. It's kind of uh, uh, a wash, otherwise.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, you know, what uh, what I see a lot also is that there's a lot of ego and and also just a lack of appreciation and understanding for what farmers have been doing for more than ten thousand years, right? I mean, here we are in you know the the two thousands in the twenty first century and. Uh, kind of like what you said. It's like, oh, farmers have, have screwed everything up, right? And, and they've damaged the environment and they're killing the bees and, you know, they're, they're using too much water and, and, and all these things. But, you know, those are also relatively recent developments in agriculture, you know, prior to World War II, farmers were land managers. I would say that they're still land managers oh, today, right? I contend I mean, they're the
1: best stewards of the land. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Because if they have, if they poison their land, if they poison their air and the water, then they can't grow crops. So it's in their best interest to have a healthy environment, to be able to grow a quality product- that is healthy and safe for us to consume.
1: hundred percent. I think that's a very arrogant and and, and ignorant attitude. I have worked with farmers of all scales and sizes all over the world, over a hundred countries, and they are hands down the best stewards of the land. Nobody cares more about the environment, about the impacts on the earth, on how they can Grow more with using less resources, uh, hands down, absolutely. Farmers are are the greatest stewards of our land, bar none.
0: Absolutely, and and so here, you know, we have the advent of this new, you know, fully enclosed indoor farming facilities and and methodologies and. Although I do think that it's aspirational and and in some some ways inspirational um, to be exploring new ways that we can grow more food to feed more people and do it more efficiently and and with it you know and doing it under all of the challenges that we are currently and and we know we're going to be facing here yeah. in the not too distant future. Um, I don't want to count. Out the field farmers. And, and Mm -hmm. I, and I also kind of don't like the attitude of, well, okay, now we're not, maybe there's a conversation. Well, we shouldn't be competing against each other as indoor greenhouse CEA farmers. We should be competing against the field farmers. But I also question that because in my mind, I feel like, no, this should now be a tool, right? Like the plow Was a tool the combine a tool the tractor a tool This is a tool that we should be sharing with all farmers and not Mm -hmm. just keeping isolated to some technology focused people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I ask people sometimes um, when you know if you were going to start a business and you needed a vehicle for your business, or you say I'm going to buy a vehicle for my business. What what's the best vehicle to buy? you know, the obvious question is going to be come back at you and say, well, what kind of business is it? What am I, what am I need to do? What do I need to do with this vehicle? And, and, and somehow, and of course, yes, of course, that's, those are the obvious questions, but people in controlled environment ag, when they're looking at that, usually when they're looking at vertical farming as a kind of a, that's their aspiration just to simply grow vertically. I always, I often ask them, well, we have to stop and look at what the application is. And that goes back to your point of tools and and the, the field and con, what we call conventional farming, and obviously there are a million different configurations yeah. of that, um, and controlled environment agriculture, which includes, of course, indoor farming, uh, greenhouse farming, etc., is that they're all part of this equation, and and I yeah I, I I get a little uptight when I hear people talking about you know one of these or some of them being really the dominant. Obviously CEA is growing in market share. Obviously there are a lot of advantages. I've you know converted most of my farming operation to CEA, but these are I mean all of them are critically important, and none of them are going to replace any mm. of the others. And and I, I agree with you a hundred percent that the field farming is another way to produce. It's not inferior in any way there. Again, like all the methods, there are advantages and disadvantages and certain applications. But at the end of the day, you know, if you say, well, one is better than the other, that's really not, not where it's at. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, on the, on the topic of what we grow using CEA. Our our listeners can't see, but there's um, a beautiful greenhouse behind you growing lettuce plants um, in in an NFT system. And some people, some of our listeners might not even know what an NFT system is. So I actually would like for you to kind of describe some of the systems that we might use. Um, But I want to ask you, why lettuce? What is the obsession with lettuce?
1: Great question. So, well, first and foremost, if you look at controlled environment agriculture in the marketplace, tomatoes, peppers, and cucumbers are overwhelmingly the the largest crops grown. When I first got involved in the industry in the 1980s, if you went into a grocery store, maybe three or 4% of all the tomatoes you saw on the shelf were hydroponic. Almost all of them were field grown tomatoes. Well, in the 37 years or so, um, now, if you go into a grocery store, sometimes it's impossible to even find field-grown tomatoes. Yeah. So so both of the markets as well as the consumers found the advantages of buying CEA-grown product from quality to availability to food safety. All factors rolled into that, and that's why the industry shifted, and that's why we saw that. So now, of course, the kind of the big hot one is leafy greens, lettuces and different types of greens and herbs. Um, and so there, there's, you know, right now we're, we're seeing this similar shift from field production, but we still, uh, a majority of our leafy greens are still field grown, but of course, you know, there are a number of factors that are, are pushing us in the opposite direction from food safety, from having the ability to actually produce lettuce. I mean, we're producing lettuce in Salinas, California and Yuma, Arizona. So most of the lettuce, you know anywhere you go has been shipped thousands of miles and has been sitting on a truck for how many days or in a warehouse. So obviously going into, you know, utilizing CEA technologies, the, the growth opportunities in, in leafy greens, of course, is, is tremendous. We eat, I mean, we eat about 21 million pounds of lettuce every day. So certainly it's one of those things where, well, we really need to produce better lettuce. And so if we can actually take Some of the, and I know we just talked about whether CEA is going to replace conventional farming, and of course I say absolutely not. But what it is going to do is is as we are now going into much more CEA leaf crop production, we're now freeing up that land for other products and other crops and other ways. Because again, when people, you know, people, you know, will say, well, you know, what's the purpose or what's the real advantage of hydroponics when all you can do is grow lettuce? Well, that of course is not the case, but the kind of, I don't want to use the term low hanging fruit, but it is kind of one of the more obvious choices right now because of market conditions, because of environmental concerns, because of food safety concerns. I mean, we can grow lettuce where I'm growing lettuce in, a, in the field and I've grown field lettuce here. And you can, with two crops a year, you can get 70,000 heads per year out of a field per acre. So 70,000 in an acre, in a one acre greenhouse, we can produce 35,000 heads every week. So in two weeks, we've already matched our yearly field production. Wow. So obviously, and, and, you know, lettuce and leafy greens too. One of the things where you're looking at tomatoes or fruiting crops like that, or cannabis is that you're managing multiple growth stages? So in lettuce and leafy greens, we're really—it's a fast-growing crop. We're producing it in its vegetative state. So you know, we're not shifting um, our lettuce plants from vegetative over to generative. We're not trying to now produce seeds or anything else. So we, there, there's a certain simplicity to the nutritional and environmental management of growing leafy greens. You know, if I'm switching over now to tomatoes, for example, I'm managing my environment, my nutrition, and my cultural practices to produce a vegetative plant and then to shift it into fruit production and then to finish that off. And of course, cannabis growing, obviously there's, you know, even more complexity to that. So, so leafy greens really is right now experiencing explosive growth because of all kind of a perfect storm of all those factors. And I and I don't want to underscore the quality and food safety aspect of it. I mean, I could, you know, when you, when you buy leaf lettuce in the store, that's field produced, you have to, you know, no matter where it is, you have to wash it very good to get some of that sand and grit out. And a lot of people, myself included, don't like to deal with that. So if you're getting spinach that's grown in a CEA facility with no salt, uh, sand or, or grit in it, or lettuce, that is a much higher quality, no pesticide residue, potentially, you know, all those things. Those those really factor into why we see leafy greens, but leafy greens is certainly not going to be, you know, the the end of this uh, movement. We're going to look as we as we develop um, the technologies and the markets. We're going to see many different other crops.
0: A lot of people might not also realize that lettuce that's grown in the field is sort of overgrown in the field, right? Yeah. And when they harvest it they cut off like 40% of the exterior yeah. leaves and just kind of leave the heart of that lettuce plant. And when we talk about food waste and food loss, 40% of that is on the farm. Um, yeah. And, and you know, that's that's one piece of it is just culling off the outside that's ugly, that's dirty, that's, yep. you know, not really what Certainly. the consumer wants and before it gets put in a box and, and sent our way. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, are what are you know, if, if I wanted to grow lettuce in a greenhouse versus growing lettuce in say a vertical farm, um, you know, what are kind of some of the decisions or the considerations that I might want to make about which one to do, which would be best for me or my, well,
1: there's a couple of things. I mean, obviously uh, you you mean as a grower or
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As a grower.
1: Yeah. So, so as a grower, obviously, um, You know what what you're producing as an end product, whether you're growing baby greens, because obviously in the in the leafy greens industry, we have a lot of um, the market is in baby leaf, um, or if you're growing whole heads or whole plant herbs. what type of flexibility you want. You know, do you are you do you plan on growing a simply green bib lettuce or do you want the ability to not only grow multiple different types of leafy greens, but the, able, the ability to switch, having some versatility. The location, the environment that are, they're growing in, that's also a big factor. Um, when we talk about different um, hydroponic systems, particularly recirculating hydroponic systems, one of the big reasons that we use NFT systems, and I can explain that in a sec, the, the NFT systems um, we use a lot because it allows us to better manage things like our dissolved oxygen, our nutrient flow, but also a system like that goes a long way into uh, actually managing our environment and the microclimates around the plants, our ability to heat and cool the plants effectively to move air, to control your VPD within the crop canopy. Um, the actual growing system plays a big role in that people tend to think about the greenhouses themselves but the actual systems themselves also do but i think now we're we're at a point where any CEA system for leaf crops, um, a recirculation system or a system that the nutrient solution is being contained within the system at all times and being reused is, is really a non-starter. We've gotten to that point now. Um, and there are many systems that, that can do that. But the, the NFT system is one that we can recirculate our systems, but also use the, the system to control uh, our environment a lot better
0: how how so like changing okay. water temperature or nutrients or what do you mean by controlling the water
1: okay so so let's let's stay within the leafy greens for the moment so so if we're growing leafy greens there's a couple of different types of systems that you can use and the nft which stands for nutrient film technique essentially is plants are grown in a plastic channel and the channel p- provides physical support it's usually on a benchtop system so you have a good workplace ergonomics. So the lettuce is not grown on the ground. It's actually grown at waist high and it's grown on table systems. And some table systems are manual, some are automated. So again, we can move the product around. So we're looking at efficiencies. But also the the channels themselves, they have certain spacings. So basically there is a certain plant population within the channel. So the plants, for example, lettuce, we may have spaced at eight inches apart, but the actual channels, there's actually airspace between them. So it's not a solid system. So for example, we have another type of system called a DWC or deep water culture system where plants are grown on a raft floating on a bed of hydroponic nutrient solution. And that system, there the plants are sitting almost as if they were on the ground on a solid surface. So you can't have a vertical air, a column of air going up and down between the plants. An NFT system, we have that space. So, uh, and again, because an NFT system is is designed to to be a certain height, usually about three to three and a half feet off the ground, we can we can move air and heat and and cooled air as well underneath the plants and then up through the crop canopy. So it's a very effective way to manage your microclimates. It's amazing. And, 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 you know, a big part of your business, of course, is managing air movement around the plant. So you're not just heating and cooling the air around it, but you are driving stomatic activity. You're trying to drive photosynthesis, respiration, transpiration, all, you know, as a vehicle uh, from your environmental control systems. So the, your ability to move air, not only just kind of over the crop, but in and through it, it's very important. So we can, we can do things like in a cold climate, we can install heating system directly under the plants. So the root systems are usually a little bit warmer than ambient temperature. We also can heat the nutrient solution to help accomplish that. Um, but again, conversely, we can also with say a positive pressure run cooled air Underneath the plants and up through. And as the, as the vertical column of air goes up through the crop, you're actually you're getting good airflow from the underside of the plant. As you know, sometimes, um, especially if the air movement is not good, you can have uh, 400 parts per million of CO2 and uh, 70% relative humidity in the grow space. But at a microclimate level, right within the crop canopy, you could have a 95% relative humidity and you could be down to 50 parts per million CO2, which the translation of that is a very unhappy plant. Right. So most of our environmental controls are kind of focused on what's going on in the space, whereas you and I are concerned about what's going on in the plant or at the plant level. Mm -hmm. So the NFT system... uh, and we haven't even talked about the actual ability to control the nutrients and dissolved oxygen, but just from an environmental standpoint, it uh, is a system that really, to my way of thinking and my experience, allows me to better manage the environment. And managing your environment, again, as you know, um, is, is a huge portion of our ability to grow uh, high quality using CEA techniques
0: yeah when it comes to, to deep water culture, I always get concerned. I, I know maybe one of the big advantages <clears throat> is that your plants are always exposed to water, right? There's always water and nutrients available at the roots. Um, if there was a power outage or you know something went wrong, it's, it's going to be a lot harder to clog a drain or clog a gutter or something yeah. like that like you might have with NFT. But I just think about you know that stagnant water. And I also think about the difficulty it is to move air and condition a deep water culture type of system. Is there any advantage, do you think, of actually moving water across the plant? Does it, does it care about that?
1: No, that's it. Well, that's an excellent point because... Another advantage and one of the, the reason that we look at say in an NFT or type of flowing technologies is that not only are we looking to make sure, and that stagnation that you talked about is very important. You can get dissolved oxygen and you can get movement within a, a, a pond system or other systems. But having the flow obviously does a few things. One, it helps deliver fresh oxygen and nutrients. All the time allows us that flow allows us better control over if we're heating or cooling our nutrient solution. Obviously, very important. Um, it's easy in a system where you have any stagnation at all. Dissolved oxygen levels start to fall very quickly, causes plant stress. It encourages pathogenic uh, growth. So you can start this whole, you know, water waterfall effect of of problems. And and the other thing is, and people don't often think about it, is is the plants are producing metabolic waste products. And getting those metabolic waste products out of the roots is very important. And mm. so having having a nutrient flow is really important. Again, sometimes people will say, "Well, lettuce doesn't like to have its roots wet. It doesn't like to have water flowing over it." I'm not a big believer in that, and I, and I, I'd rather say, "Well, what is like the flowing or lack thereof? What is that doing to the plants?" and And that's where we want to look at it. So so the the flowing water is like just very much like our circulatory system. If our heart stops, we're not going anywhere because suddenly we're not getting, um, not only are we not getting oxygen and nutrients to our cells, but we're also not removing the metabolic waste products. And that's the same thing with the plants. So we always look at our hydroponic nutrient solution as a living, breathing entity, not a, uh, a sterile chemical and, and the, the flow of the systems like that really goes to enabling that.
0: Interesting. You mentioned, you were talking about temperature, obviously near and dear to my heart, and and you can, you know, with NFT or more of these sort of open structure type of, of systems, growing systems, you can blow air, warm air from below if it's cold um, or to, to assist with heating, or you can blow cold air um, from, to, from below to assist with cooling. Are, are you in, in doing that? Are you controlling root temperature? And, and would you also do that with water temperature? Would you also think about adjusting, cooling the water or, or delivering warmer water to help with managing the thermal environment of the plant?
1: absolutely and and again this is anecdotal and I don't know if there's any research that's really been done I have seen that um, in a cold climate especially under low light by managing the the root zone temperature to probably maybe around five degrees Fahrenheit higher than ambient air temperature we've seen an increase in growth rate and quality uh, again anecdotal I've seen it you know here in Massachusetts I I built my first nutrient solution heating system probably 20 years ago um, to to overcome some of the challenges of of winter growing. And so certainly that's something I'm not a big advocate again, because we have to focus on the economics is that, you know, especially in a hot climate where people say, well, we'll just put in chillers and we'll just keep the nutrient solution cool as kind of a replacement for good environmental management. And I don't think that's the case. So certainly, physical environment and and rooting environment which includes temperature and dissolved oxygen certainly they need to work in concert with each other I think that's one of the areas where we have a lot of room and to grow and some of the exciting technologies and you know we, we've really uh, in a lot of ways, just started to scratch the surface of our understanding of horticulture. I know we all like to say that we've got it all figured out, but, uh, but no. And so, so yeah, so managing the, the, uh, the temperature, especially in a harsh climate or in extreme conditions certainly has advantages, but again, you have to balance it with the economics of doing so. Um, A lot of times people talk about, especially in in a hot climate, you know, you have to chill the nutrient solution because dissolved oxygen, you know, goes to heck really quickly. Well, there's ways to balance, to manage it, to, to get more dissolved oxygen into the solution as, as much as possible and managing the, the temperature of the nutrient solution, bringing it down enough where you still can can maintain adequate DO without, again, just trying to say, well, we'll just drop the temperature to 70 degrees and everything will be fine.
0: Plants are so complicated. You need carbon dioxide from the top, and you need oxygen from the bottom. They don't just want one or the other.
1: Nope, absolutely.
0: <laughs> Thanks, plants. I guess maybe they feed themselves in nature, right? Like the CO two, um, they they absorb the CO two and release oxygen from the leaves, and then maybe that oxygen gets worked back down into the soil or something. I don't
1: know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a lot of the a lot of the 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 way that plants have evolved is obviously incredibly amazing. But now that we're bringing all these technologies into to play, and I think this goes to your podcast, What Plants Crave, is that we really always have to go back to what is optimal for the plant and mm-hmm. having to to incorporate our technologies and methods to doing that, not the other way around.
0: Yeah. You know, what mistakes have you seen people make when designing Mm. I want to ask this kind of in two parts but because there's the there's the pre-operation there's the design of the greenhouse and and what makes a good greenhouse and what makes a crappy greenhouse um and then you know once you're in operations um you know what 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 is what is a good good methodology or strategy for just you know just just good, solid, best management practices for operations. And the reason I kind of bring them both together, because they're, they're kind of two questions, but they're also related, right? Because the way that you design it is going to affect how you operate it. And the way that you want to operate it or are hoping to operate it should impact how you design that greenhouse. So I don't know how you want to answer this question, but what are maybe some like good and 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 bad things you've seen with the design of a greenhouse and as well as with the operation of a greenhouse
1: sure what are you saying that plant production (laughs) and cea is complicated
0: (laughs) oh it's easy right you just plant the seed and and it grows
1: I love talking with people like you in the industry who can go really deep and do a deep dive into, this, into the real technical aspects of it. But at the end of the day, we can always bring it back to kind of plain, simple English. Yeah. And, and again, so, so, so kind of going back to my golden rule again of being able to produce market competitive quality, to, to be able to do it consistently at an economic price point that's competitive and to, to make money doing it. Really the design of the system goes to that. And so I, on a daily basis on a many times a day, I get calls from people. I'm going to grow in a shipping container. I want to grow in an indoor farm. I want to grow in a greenhouse. And, and I always have to stop them and back them up. and, and, And we start looking at, well, what are you really looking to do? You're not looking to run an indoor farm. You're looking to what? Okay. We're looking to produce lettuce in the inner city, to provide a social mission and feed some people but also to generate revenue and have a cash flow positive business. Okay. And where is this? Well, it's in New York City. Okay. So now we're starting to look at the location, we're starting to look at the the goal of the business, what we're looking to produce. And and again, you know, the between, you know, we, we have leaf crop systems and we have vine crop systems. So vine crop systems obviously are a little bit physically different, but can produce tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers, et cetera. So those two systems, and there's different types of each one of those, but the vine crop and the leaf crop system pretty much can grow anything you want to grow. So we have to step back and look and say, okay, so what is not only are the maybe the specific crop we're looking to grow or the, or the group of crops, but what also down the road we may want to either add or shift over to. So we have to look at that. And we have to look at obviously our location or our climate. Um, one of the other big issues is we have to look at our budget you know people I, all the time on social media will argue especially when they look at the um, the really automated systems they will say well this is the future this is the way everything is going to go when you start looking at the cost of installing or designing or implementing or maintaining a lot of these systems it's not cost effective in other applications you have to automate and you have to go at that level of technology so so really getting back to the nitty-gritty the bare bones where are you? What are you looking to do? What's your what's your level of expertise is? What's your appetite for you know size and scale and expandability? And and what your overall budget is going to be. Because if you're looking to start a small business and you've got a, a hundred thousand dollar budget, you know, that is going to dictate the level of technology. And I hate when people say, Well, for that kind of money, you can't really set up a profitable business. I have seen very profitable, high-level, large-scale, technologically advanced greenhouses. And I've seen the same size and technology greenhouses lose phenomenal amounts of money. And I've seen the same thing with small scale, very low-tech systems struggle financially, but then also small-scale, low-tech greenhouses making a ton of money. In fact, some of our more profitable growers are actually small-scale, simple technology growers. So,
0: What makes the biggest difference between those? So,
1: so really, again, going back to kind of what you're looking to spend, what your overall goals are really, really will drive that. And, you know, that includes, you know, where you're located. So, so let, let's say, for example, we, we, we're looking to produce here in the Northeast. Obviously, our climate is going to be a big factor. Uh, even things like our construction costs, where we can locate what land costs are. Are we looking to build a, a farm within a city or maybe in a more rural or suburban area that's along the shipping routes? you know, those are, and I don't mean to make it sound overly complicated, but there are a lot of factors that we have to look at. Now, once we do, it's kind of like a a stone cutter taking a big block of stone and quickly whittling it down to a basic shape and then fine tuning it into a beautiful sculpture. We do the same thing. We really have to kind of start very big, very broad, take into all these accounts. Because again, you know, no one's real goal is to grow lettuce in a shipping container they have a different model. They want to grow with, well, maybe some do, but, but, but that's, that, that's the, that's the, the, the seduction. That's where people who, whether they're in the industry or not, they see a technology, they see these vertical systems or these you know crazy growing systems that you know, blink the lights on and off, and spin the plants around, and do all these things, and that's really appealing. But it's like at the end of the day, what are you hoping that system is going to actually do for you? So we really break it down. I always take people, try to 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 really go big picture first, and look at all those factors because those factors are all very important. Where you are, what you're growing, etc.
0: I mean, kind of what what I'm hearing you're saying, and even from the very beginning, um, is start with why.
1: Yeah, right? absolutely.
0: Why this technology? Why why this type of greenhouse? Why lettuce? Why this location? Right. And like just breaking it all. It's, it's like being a little kid. Why, 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 why? Until you get to the why, which is to serve an underserved community, right? Yeah. And to make them healthier. OK, now we know why you're doing this. Now let's step back on how can yep. you achieve that goal and do, like you said, maybe be mission driven and make some money so that you can support the people who are helping you grow. Right. And and yep. support the operations of that of that system. Yeah.
1: yeah. And if you're um, again, if you're here in the Northeast, we have to look at the greenhouse design to accommodate for the, the most economical way to manage the environment. Because we have hot summers, we have cold winters, we have snow loads, we have shading issues we have to look at. So there's a lot of things that we have to look at from that end. And and then once that's done, we can then kind of reshape the business. And and versatility is another one that I think sometimes is Mm underappreciated. You know Rachel Ray, who actually Rachel Ray actually has one of our systems at her home in Upstate New York. But if if she goes on TV and suddenly talks about how amazing cilantro is, you wouldn't believe how many of our growers suddenly get calls from their buyers going, "Hey, can you grow cilantro for me?" And so having a system that has the versatility where you can put some of your production into cilantro quickly. Uh, and economically makes a lot of sense because you know that that's the other thing people argue with me all the time and argue with each other over you know what the the right crop to grow is and there's no such thing and um, you know, when I started, I was growing lettuce and I've grown everything from basil and shifted, you know, the, the bulk of my production many, many different times based on market conditions and other factors. So your system has got to at least somewhat, and this is your your growing system, but also your greenhouse or your grow room has got to have that capacity to be able to shift if need be. To Do you so think you a
0: greenhouse is easier to shift production than maybe um, a vertical farm? Or not
1: necessarily. Uh, it, yeah, it's hard to to compare the two in terms of versatility. But I think probably generally yes. Specifically, again, because with a greenhouse system, you're you're managing a horticultural environment from the get go by its basic design. Um, with within a greenhouse, usually. Um, the growing system and the versatility of the actual growing system is going to be more impactful. Maybe with an indoor farm, the environmental management might be a little more of a consideration again, because with an indoor farm, you are much more tightly controlling that environment and utilizing maybe different equipment and different approaches. So that would be, if I was going to be growing in an indoor, I'd be calling Dr. Greenhouse and asking for some advice.
0: Yeah I mean when I think about in fully indoor farms I mean it's amazing how much time is spent on specking out exactly the right lights um, for the product that they're expecting to grow. And so now you have these, these tuned wavelengths and intensities to hit a certain DLI and a certain amount of time. Um, and then the HVAC system is all dependent on that. And then you have the irrigation and nutrient system, which is also really you know, specific to what they're growing. And when I think about, okay, now you're going to go from, I don't know, microgreens to basil, like, oh my God, like basil is a light hungry plant, right? Yeah. It likes different nutrients. It needs more space to grow um, to the stature that you you probably want to, to grow it to. Um, and to me, that just seems, I mean... To build in the flexibility into an indoor farm, thinking about, oh, today it might be microgreens, tomorrow it might be teen greens, and the next week it might be cilantro, or not next week, but next year uh, might be cilantro, that becomes a very expensive system. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Because you have to be able to hit all of those targets. But when I think about a greenhouse, I mean, it is more simple, it's less precisely controlled, but you're always relying on on sunlight. um, And you can provide supplemental lighting as needed, or shading if you don't need that much light, say for lettuce that you did originally for tomatoes. Um, So in some ways, the greenhouse being less precise, in my mind also makes it more flexible, more forgiving in a way.
1: Absolutely, yeah, for, for sure. And 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 traditionally, and this is not always the case, but in a greenhouse environment, and this is one of the things I really love about greenhouse production as well, and we're, we're seeing the industry move in this direction more and more, is that we're providing more air volume. So mm. in a greenhouse, per head of lettuce or per tomato plant, we have much more volume. And there's a lot to that, whether we're talking buffering capacity, the ability to control the environment, there's a lot of forgiveness there. And an indoor vertical farm, as you well know, the the apparent ultimate goal for some of these people is to cram as many plants into a cubic space as humanly possible, you know, to heck with any other horticultural. There's not even that room
0: for the ductwork at the top level. Exactly. um, Or... You know, even in cannabis farms, you know, I've I walked through and some have, are, you know, a lot of them still use HID lighting or high pressure sodium lighting, and some are converting to LEDs. And, you know, you, you walk in with someone who doesn't really understand thermodynamics and and probably doesn't have the experience I have with greenhouses and understanding how that attic space can actually work to your yeah. advantage. And people walk in, they just look and they're like, oh, my God, there's like, you know 18 feet of you know unused space yeah. and they say
1: wasted space
0: exactly they say wasted space and they're like oh how much energy is being wasted by conditioning that space or by trying to fill the car you know the whole volume with carbon dioxide and you know i just want to be like well actually it's probably helping keep the canopy at the right temperature carbon dioxide is heavier than air. So it's not up there. It's sinking down to the bottom, no concerns there. And I don't vilify these big, empty, quote unquote, empty spaces like a lot of people do where they look and they just say, yeah, that's, that's, you know, bad feng shui, I guess, wasted space. (laughs) Um, And I'm like, no, that's not wasted space. That's probably actually helping your crop as opposed to deleteriously, I guess, affecting your crop or energy for that matter. It might actually take less energy because all that hot air is drifting to the top. And we're just concerned about cooling the space down below. There's, there's always, I feel like with the greenhouse, there's always that debate, Uh, you know, we still sort of have it, even though I know better. It's like, okay, when you're designing a, a pad and fan cooling system, right. And, and the pad is at canopy height and the fans are at canopy height, but then you have these 20 foot gutters, should we be considering the the twenty foot volume, or we should be considering like the fifteen foot volume? Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, you know, again, here in the Northeast, heating is a big consideration. Yes. With, and um, if I could go back and rebuild the greenhouses that I built here on my own farm, is I would have made them substantially taller. You know, you know, the, I've got gutter connect greenhouses here with a with a nine foot gutter height, and you know, if I could go back Ooh. and double that right now. I would be saving fuel and, and how, to, I have, how
0: that, that okay. feels counterintuitive, Perfect. right? I'm glad you asked that. Yes. I'm glad
1: you asked that. I think you already know the answer, but um, so it is. And I'll, I'll be very honest. I learned something new in the CEA every single day. I've been doing this almost 40 years and I still love the fact that I learned something. And a number of years ago, it was brought to me that as the, as the greenhouses were starting to get taller, as you say, intuitively that's more air volume to heat. So it costs more to heat. No, it does not. Because where do we lose the heat in the greenhouse? We don't lose it sitting in the middle of the greenhouse. It goes out through the glazing. So the surface area of the greenhouse is where our heat loss is. So we have a certain air volume or a certain cubic volume uh, in the greenhouse. As the greenhouses get taller, Our cubic volume of air goes up, but the actual surface area of the greenhouse does not match that. It actually goes up, but not comparatively. So you are actually getting more air in the greenhouse per less square footage of exposed spaces. And and to your point before about um, having air, uh, volume up higher where in the summertime you have a much, you have a lot of your heat is, is up there. So down below your crop level it's much easier to maintain proper temperatures there. Your CO2 is also dropping. So may, and you do have that buffer where your environmental swings are not nearly as dramatic. So managing it, um, again, to the systems that you design and implement, you know, there's a certain cost financially and also cost to the, to the wear and tear of the equipment of cycling many, many times over. So as the, the volume inside a greenhouse gets bigger, our ability to control the environment gets better, not worse. And I, and I, you know, I will freely admit that I had a hard time swallowing that. When I first learned it. And once I learned it, it was like it now now that's common sense to me. But people still will argue with me all the time. And so I build greenhouses taller all the time. I mean, obviously, certainly there's a there's a, a limit, but at this point, you know, controlled environment agriculture is about controlling your environment. And yeah, when people say that, well, that's wasted space, they obviously don't understand proper environmental management. So it's all usable space and it's space that's being used effectively.
0: So basically we're decreasing our surface area to volume ratio.
1: Absolutely. Correct.
0: Um, and, and, you know, greenhouses have been around for a while uh, in in various iterations and for various reasons um but you know the glass house the atrium the you know conservatories all these things right and when you even think about where greenhouses were sort of originally developed they were in colder climates like where 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 you are in in massachusetts or you know i think of the uk or obviously the netherlands and canada has a big greenhouse industry and there's a reason why these conservatories, there's a reason why these greenhouses are tall and have this attic space. If if there wasn't a reason, then they would all just be, you know, these flat, short roofs. Yep. And you know, we've learned something, and maybe because we people don't necessarily understand the thermodynamics of why. Uh, it, there's also this, I feel like this level of trust. It's like there's a re, you know, over time, these iterations have developed taller and taller greenhouses, taller and taller hot houses, and there's a reason why for that. Uh, just to kind of follow along that line of track, because I love that you know greenhouses in a cold climate. And I think a lot of people don't realize that the term greenhouse effect comes from our industry of of greenhouse, where we're actually trying to trap, like we purposely want to trap that infrared right radiation, long wave radiation in the greenhouse, which is why a lot of them were glass houses and work pretty well in cold, especially sunny climates. We want that sun to come in and then we want to keep it in to -hmm. reduce our heating costs and grow tropical plants and lettuce plants all year long. you know, when I think about vertical farms also, I mean, so many of them are popping up in the same locations where greenhouses have, you know, over time worked really well and where they are originally developed for I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on that. Like, I mean, should we kind of reorient ourselves back to greenhouses because they've proven that they work, or or are there some some good reasons to go totally opaque, insulated walls, right? And and artificial, or I shouldn't say artificial, electric lighting um in these indoor farms.
1: Okay. So uh in terms of and when I say indoor farm, what I'm referring to again is that, that indoor space that's completely isolated from the outside environment you're, you're supplying all the lights you're supplying everything environmentally and nutritionally for the plants So there certainly are applications and I, I do not like you know the you know the impression that people have of me that I'm saying indoor vertical farms are absolute waste of time however, on a commercial scale most of them do not make the most sense as compared to other technologies now with that said, uh, there are, especially, you know, where I've done uh, indoor vertical farms, we did one for Apple that was pretty much a showpiece. It wasn't a um, uh, necessarily an economic winner, for sure. But in, in extremely harsh climates, you know, where we do have areas where, you know, we have some in northern territories, uh, uh, Canada, uh, northern Canada, uh, Alaska, where, I mean, three hours of sunlight a day for months on end. It's very difficult to make a case for a greenhouse. Conversely, very hot, hot temperatures, uh, desert climates with sand storms, things like that. Certainly. Um, And I also see a lot of the value in the research um, value of the indoor vertical farming. this is where a lot of the lighting technologies really have evolved. And we've learned a lot more about that. Where we need to, especially when we're looking at medicinal plants, for example, pharmaceutical crops the ability or the necessity to really control the environment, including the lighting to a very high level, certainly there's application. So I think for the most part, it's an extreme climate or a research and development model that that most of the indoor vertical farms, in my way of thinking, make the most sense. If we're looking at food production for the most part, you know, again, we're, we're looking at productivity and economics. In most areas of the world, greenhouse production makes the most sense again because of a lot of the factors that we've talked about it's it's really it's it's a combination of all those factors it's the economics it's the productivity it's the crop quality i have yet to see an indoor vertical farm that produces crops that i would consider to be competitive with crops that are grown in the greenhouse using supplemental lighting and you know all the cea technologies that we've used there are certainly some that have produced some very interesting and good looking stuff but at the end of the day you have to make it competitive on all levels, including economics. You know, and, and again, there's, there's unique applications. One of the things that, I, that I, I wanna back up to with indoor vertical farming is that people often say that one of the big cases for that is we have industrial buildings. You know, I have real estate people all the time calling me saying, hey, I own three buildings. I wanna set up a grow room. It doesn't make sense to do a greenhouse because I don't wanna build a new greenhouse. I've got my building space already. They don't take into account the high level and high expenses of designing environmental management systems and potentially you know, structural uh, alterations to a building to make it electrical applicable.
0: upgrades. Oh my building. gosh,
1: that's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I had just recently a gentleman who owns mill buildings, and you know these are mostly wooden structures that have very old and outdated, <laughs> uh, potentially dangerous electrical uh, services. And, and they just think that they're just going to plug in 5,000 LED lights and grow, you know, and produce God knows how many cubic feet of water vapor every day into this space without looking at that. So, um, again, it goes to our conversation about, you know, what goes into the design and, and what your end goal is and your design based on that will really dictate what type of technologies. And, and I, I don't see a lot of technology that are a lot of application that calls for indoor vertical farming to be the, the, the method of choice. One of the other challenges that I see in that, again, and this is where they talk about space utilization. This is where we start stacking systems one on top of another. And it goes to a lot of your work is the suddenly it becomes infinitely more difficult to manage the environment. Um, And in most cases, there are certain cases where we want to be, we have to work with limited space. And of course, in all of our CEA technology, we want to maximize the use of space. But by and large, in in our CEA industry, we are not limited by space. So if if you're looking to produce lettuce in a city, even in a city, I mean, we've got Harlem grown with a greenhouse in between two buildings. We've got Gotham and Sky Vegetables with farms on the roof. We've got Um, Farms in parks and urban areas. We have farms right outside the city limits. I mean, there's always places to grow. So the idea that we need to go vertical to get it to cram as many plants as possible Doesn't really hold water, um, both from a productivity and economic sense. And I, I challenge anybody to go into a kindergarten classroom anywhere and look at the room and say, look at all this wasted space. There's 30 kids in here. We could easily fit 90 kids in here. Well, that's not conducive to proper learning and childhood development. The same thing with our plants. Just build a again. loft
0: and they can just, yeah. you know, sit up we there. We just stack them
1: <laughs> vertically. I mean, I could build the desks. I could <laughs> stack one on top of another. And and honestly, and, and I know we, we laugh about it, but, but honestly, that's a ridiculous concept. But for some reason, people think that that could still apply to plants and not be equally ridiculous. So we really, again, to your point of what plants crave and understanding that the, the basis of your work, uh, Nadia, is to find the best ways to manage the environment for optimum crop growth. And, you know, looking at, at, you know, just trying to make a plant fit into a particular technology because you think it's cool or it's innovative or everybody's doing it, you know, doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, That was Dr. Nadia Saba interviewing Joe Swartz of AmHydro for our What Plants Crave series. Tune in next week to hear the second half of their conversation. I'm Dana Swadan, and this is The Doctor is In. Thank you for growing with us.